Hello, good morning, happy Monday. It is just a meal today. Imogen will be back tomorrow, but uh, I don't know if you heard, but she got engaged recently, so I think there have been some celebrations going on. So she's forgiven for this. Speaking of celebrations, how's that for a segue? Uh, the Warriors dug out an 18-6 win over St. George over the weekend. They are locked in now for a top four finish with one regular season match left to play. Of course, the closer that they get to the grand final, the more certain I am that it's all going to come crumbling down around us because I am a New Zealand sports fan and uh, I have learned through bitter experience that good things simply can't happen. These are the laws of the universe, immutable, and uh, it's the hope that kills you, all that good stuff. So, um, hey, let's just enjoy it while I say, up the wires. Kia ora, this is Newsable, I'm Emil, and this is What's Worth Talking About. The youngest Kiwi Formula One driver in nearly half a century took to the tarmac in Amsterdam overnight. We speak to his proud dad. Chris Hipkins throws New Zealand first on the wood chipper, but could ruling out Winston come back to haunt the Labour Party? We take a deep dive into the murky world of art theft after the British Museum admitted it lost track of more than 2,000 items. And lastly, Spain's glorious World Cup win is overshadowed by the deeply inappropriate behaviour of the footballing body's own president. we get all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. Liam Lawson's qualifying is done uh, on his uh, first ever F1 qualifying session. Overnight, 21-year-old Liam Lawson became the youngest Kiwi in nearly half a century to race in Formula One. His debut was as a replacement for the injured Alfa Tori driver Daniel Ricciardo in the Dutch Grand Prix. And uh, we had to record this before the race because it was in the middle of the night. But whatever the result, Liam's call-up has capped an incredible ascent to the elite of world motor racing. It's a long way from the go-kart tracks of Auckland where he learned his craft alongside his dad, Jared. And uh, very excitingly, Jared joins me now. Kia ora. Hello, how are you? Now, you were with Liam every lap of the way in those early years, all the way to now. And w- when you look at him and where he's at, at the peak of the sport, you know, ha- w- what does this mean to you and, and to the family more broadly, I guess? Obviously, it's, um, it's a huge moment. A lot of time, a lot of sacrifices made, etc. from the whole family. But it's just like it hasn't even really sunk in yet. From a sort of a spectator's point of view, you know, we see him now. We see him as the the finished product. But when Liam was on Generally Famous with Simon Bridges, the Stuff podcast earlier this year, he talked a lot about the investment from from you, you know, the financial investment, but also the investment of time and sort of emotional energy. Is this the payoff now? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think anyone goes into it with a sense of being paid off, um, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of monetary or otherwise, but. But certainly, um, I think from a family perspective, I think, you know, Christy, myself and, and you know, his, his siblings are just, it's it's nice to see him reach something that he has strived so hard to reach, you know, to, to go for. It's one of those things that's almost untouchable and he was told it was untouchable and he never stopped believing in himself. And that, I think, is the most important thing. So now when you look at him and you go, he's on the grid, I mean, he... It's it's one thing to to be on the grid, to stay there is another, but to be at that point is pretty amazing. You say he was told that it was untouchable. Do you think that that was a, a driving force? That idea of like whatever you tell me, I can't do. That's what I'm going to do. Absolutely, I think um, Liam and his mother will tell you as well. He's he's always been very strong-willed, um, 
and um, and I do distinctly remember when we were looking for sponsorship money and we were walking around the streets of Pukekohe and I've told this story many times but there was a lady who said to him you um, forget Formula One mm-hmm. you know you're uh, you're dreaming that's that's not possible and at the time I think he was 12 years old and I remember we came out of the door of that company and he looked looked at me he was very confused and he said to me he said why would she say that and I remember being really angry at the time because you don't say that to a, to a 12 year old 13 year old kid crushing their dreams you know but I think all those sort of things spurred them on have you been back to that business no <laughs> well I'm telling you you should be I know who I know which one it is though <laughs> I bet you do tell me a bit about the um the process of finding out that he was gonna be racing what what did you do when you heard the news so we we were awoken at uh, about four I think it was 4 30 in the morning on Saturday morning um, mm-hmm. By Liam's girlfriend, who's who's in the USA, Hannah, and she she phoned. I could tell there was a lot of excitement in her voice because it was Christie's phone that rang under under a pillow, and um, I basically uh, just listened to her and she she rattled off. She she said um, Liam's going to be um, going to be racing because Daniel's unfortunately hurt his hand. So we sort of um, I tried to process it for the first few minutes, and then then sort of realised, hey, this is this is big because he's got practice session a quality session and a proper race so not a full weekend but nearly and obviously we're talking before the race so tell me you know what's your plan we're about to you're going to watch it who are you going to watch it with is it going to be a great big you're going to be lighting up the town at half past four in the morning (laughs) no nothing like that i think we'll just watch it as a family um yeah we'll just huddle on the couch and and watch it and with no great expectations other than we hope he uh, he enjoys it and we hope that he um he gets the laps in because that's the most crucial thing at the moment is just getting the time in the car because it's just an F1 to get time in the car is just so difficult mm. for these young guys. It's terrific stuff. And uh, we all hope that this is the first of many Formula One appearances. Thank you very much. Now, uh, as we said earlier, we recorded that interview yesterday, but Jared, what a good bugger, was good enough to send us a message from the Lawson family home in Pukekohe this morning. Just finished watching the uh, Grand Prix and uh, super proud um, as a family we watched it and super proud of the result to finish where he did uh, in 13th position uh, after everything was thrown and was just amazing and I think without the um, without the, the stops and um, the delay in the pit stop and so forth um, he would have been further up the order so an amazing result looking forward to next week. We're going to be chatting politics in just a second, but there is something I've been thinking about all day, and I am keen to outsource it to the newsable hive mind, and it is this. If you owned a Formula One team, what would you call it? And please don't bother saying Speedy McSpeedface, because I have already taken that name. Let me know. You can find us on Insta or TikTok. Just search up Newsable NZ, or of course you can send us an email, newsableatstuff.co.nz. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo of that gotcha journalist. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line no, there. That, that, I think that, it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, that, yeah we're, I'm not worried about it at all. That's, Nothing that's in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. So on that basis, I am ruling out working with New Zealand First and Winston Peters 
after the election. And the pre-election rhetoric is ramping up with some potentially landscape-shifting moves over the weekend. Here to round them all up for us, like a herd of sheep, is Stuff Political Editor Luke Malpass. And kia ora to you, Luke. I like the sound of that description. <laughs> You're welcome. There was a ruling out over the weekend. That is very exciting. Please tell us what happened there. Chris Hipkins has ruled out working with Winston Peters. He has said that the government with Peters would be unstable and that basically he seeks to sow division and is now trying to hoover up extremists and, um, and Labour doesn't want to go with him. This is an interesting move, isn't it? Because uh, I think there was a leaked poll last Friday which suggested that New Zealand First was Labour's only route to power. Now Hipkins is ruling them out. What is your read on the, the line of thinking here? Woodson ruled out working with Labour quite some time ago and basically he has just returned the favour and confirmed that Labour won't work with New Zealand first and also I guess put the message out to anyone who might vote for Winston but want a Labour government that that isn't an option. Right. Has Winston said anything about this yet? Uh, yes he has. He was actually scheduled to give a speech in New Plymouth slightly after the, the Prime Minister did his thing and basically he came out swinging and he said wow we ruled out going with Labour because they had racist policies and they'd lied to me when I was in office with them last time. Mm-hmm. Old news, basically. Has Christopher Luxon also ruled out working with New Zealand First? No, he hasn't. And today, he's basically stuck with the same line for quite a period now, which is he just won't talk about what happens after the election. He mm-hmm. just says, we're trying to max out Nationals Party vote, and that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. The interesting question will be if he comes under sustained questioning and pressure over the next few days. It is the last week of Parliament, so he'll be back amongst the parliamentary press pack. Uh, whether that position changes. The Greens made a couple of announcements over the weekend. Tell us a bit about what they are promising to do. They promised light rail for Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch. They're shooting for the moon. They're saying in Wellington, you know, we'll have light rail built by 2030 which, given New Zealand's track record on these sorts of things recently, seems highly unlikely. Uh, the costings look a bit rubbery as well. Uh, but they've also promised a $750 million fund basically for urban greenery regeneration. And finally on this, Luke, David Seymour, it seems, remains convinced that the famed socialist Nelson Mandela would vote for Act were he uh, a New Zealand citizen voting in the 2023 election. Are you excited about this new game of what political party would historical figures vote for? And do you think we could broaden it out to not only parties but policies? So, for example, you know, who would Anne Frank vote for? What was the notorious BIG's perspective on um, trickle-down economics? That sort of thing. You know, I think this is a risk for David Seymour. I think um, saying some of these more outlandish things things makes him look a bit less serious and that's something that he's actually built up over the last two or three years is, is yeah we're a small party but we're actually quite serious and we've got answers to things you know making ridiculous claims like oh well nelson mandela would have voted for us is uh not very on point a pleasure as always to chat to you really appreciate it thank you thanks so much Bill. if you believe the movies and why wouldn't you Stealing a piece of art requires serious resources, like, you know, a a helicopter and a harness 
and a sexy, lycra-clad, computer-hacking, kung-fu expert sidekick. But maybe, actually, it's not that hard. Recently, the venerated British Museum confirmed as many as 2,000 of its items have just disappeared in a serious security breach. So how are these thieves pulling these operations off? And what do you do with a stolen piece of art? And how would someone go about trying to recover one? Christopher Marinello is a lawyer and the founder of Art Recovery International. And he's with me now from London. Christopher, it's great to have you on the show. It's my pleasure. How common is this genre of art theft? Well, we get reports almost every morning and recovery from small museums, churches, cultural institutions that had thefts uh, overnight. But it's unusual that it would come from an institution as important and as well-funded as the British Museum. How does something like this happen? There's clearly been some sort of a breakdown uh, in their security procedures. And, you know, we would like to see the trustees and the chairman of the British Museum hold a press conference and let us know what happened. At this point, we really don't know how this could have happened. We don't know uh, what the the breakdown was. We don't fully know what has been stolen. There's been no list reported. And we would like to hear how they plan on keeping this from happening again. Is there a gentle balance to strike there, though? You don't want to give too much information away because that might be publicizing your vulnerabilities to the world, might it not? All my work for museums is pro bono, and I've recovered over $600 million worth of stolen art. For me to do what I do, I need, as quickly as possible, a list of what has been taken. Uh, And and we need to take that list and put it on Interpol and private and public databases so that the art trade and collectors and people who buy on eBay and things like that can check against the database as part of their due diligence process. It's one of the issues here, Christopher, that... These sorts of museums, they have a huge amount of stuff in storage, which presumably will be much easier to steal than the things that are actually out on display for the public. You don't take a book out of a library without having to show your card, without, you know, checking it out. And then it it goes on record that it's been out and you get hounded until the book is returned. Well, that's what's supposed to happen at every single museum when a researcher takes something out to study and, and it hasn't happened here or... Perhaps they trusted this individual so much after 30 years that they let the security lapse. Are most art thefts committed by somebody with a connection to the institution? I'm thinking, for example, of of staff. People who do this are are trying mostly to cash out or embarrass their employer Mm -hmm. or there's something that has mentally gone wrong. Uh, You you say cash out. I'm fascinated by that. With a really famous antique, you, you can't sell it. You know, who's going to buy this? Well, criminals aren't necessarily bright. Otherwise, they'd have proper jobs. So they always think that they're going to be able to monetize whatever they have taken. Here in the British Museum, these were items that were kept in the storerooms that were used for research and study. Some may not even been cataloged at all, which is a problem in itself. So uh, I, I guess... Whoever did this thought that they could sell them under the radar. It it appears that they've succeeded. Christopher Marinelli, thank you very much for your time and your insight into this really murky and fascinating world. Really interesting stuff. Coming up later, how did Spanish football get from World Cup glory to total turmoil in less than a week? 
But first, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. It really helps other people to find us as well. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. You might have seen some stories about the World Cup winning Spanish women's football team lately that aren't actually about that World Cup win, which is a bit depressing. Instead, they concern a bust up between the boss of Spanish football and one of those World Cup winning players. So the boss in question is called Luis Rubiales. And uh, as I mentioned, he's the president of the Spanish Football Federation. So he's kind of like the Spanish football equivalent of Mark Robinson, what Mark Robinson is to New Zealand rugby. When the Spanish team won the World Cup, he was up there on stage as the players collected their medals, and he was very enthusiastic, Rubiales. Many observers, in fact, thought he was too enthusiastic. He was, you know, hugging the players and picking them up and nuzzling into their necks and so on. It looked a wee bit odd, and it looked especially odd when he grabbed one of the players by the back of her head, uh, her name is Jennifer Hermoso, and planted a great big kiss right on her lips. And this led to a bit of an outcry, and Rubiales was defiant. He claimed in a press conference that the kiss was consensual and that the criticism was, quote, false feminism, and that he was a victim of social assassination and he would not be stepping down from his role. Shortly after that, Hermoso released a statement. The statement said that she absolutely did not consent to being kissed by her boss in front of a gigantic global TV audience, and actually this made her feel really uncomfortable. And 80 of her fellow players signed a letter which said uh, they would refuse to play for the team as long as Rubiales remained president. And in response, the Spanish Football Federation threatened to sue them. All 80 of them. There are now some new developments in the story. Almost the entire Spanish coaching team has resigned in protest against uh, Rubiales. The head coach, Jorge Vilda, has described the kiss as inappropriate and unacceptable. And FIFA, which is the world football governing body, has suspended Rubiales for an initial period of three months. So that's where we're at now. But I did just want to say, you know, I find this very depressing and dispiriting. This was Spain's first ever Women's World Cup win. The team was unbelievable. They played some absolutely scintillating football. And Spanish women's football in general is having this amazing moment in time right now. And instead of basking in this glory and doing all of the ticker tape parades and the ads and the interviews and whatever, some attention-seeking bloke in a suit has come along and kind of seized the narrative and made everything all about him. I've moaned on here before about the total lack of self-awareness that a lot of executives and men in football seem to have but this is just kind of next level and it's so patronizing to women's football i think it's a real bummer that this great achievement has been derailed by this guy so um in the spirit of all that we're gonna wrap the show now that's newsable for today i'm emil donovan we will be back tomorrow with a new episode at 6 a.m and uh, i reckon this is what the biggest story in spanish football should be right about
If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support.